Hey, uh, this sermon is number 19 in our uh, mini-series titled Jesus Everywhere. Uh, you may remember this uh, picture I've shown now and then. Uh, have you found Jesus, asked the evangelist, and he's hiding in her apartment behind the curtain. See him there, right behind the curtain? Well, uh, these sermons really build on each other. And Jesus is just so huge, and he really is everywhere, you just can't say everything in a sermon. So if you feel lost today, I hope you go back and listen to the sermon, and you weren't at the, didn't hear the sermons before, go back and look at them online on the website. Uh, when I say something like fire or brimstone or something, I want you to think about those other sermons and, and they all come together. But right now, uh, let's pray, all right? Lord God, you are so good, so big, Lord Jesus, you are everywhere, and yet you're also somewhere, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And so, Lord God, would you help us not to be afraid? Um, you have revealed yourself to us, and would you help us to see you everywhere? And now, Lord God, would you help us to preach? In Jesus' name, amen. I'll never let go. I promise. Well, those are the uh, four clips, you know, that we looked at in the last sermon, plus Dr. Evil singing, What If God Was One of Us? And, and, and what, what if God was one of us? I mean, what if God were to show up in our society, in our culture, in some way? 
Um, would we recognize him? Would we, would we know him? You know, we're the people that say God did uh, become one of us. He ate our food, walked our roads, dressed in our clothes, spoke our language, even told stories. In fact, usually they were our stories, the parables, just with like a little twist in them. So, so what, if God, what if God showed up in Denver or, or Hollywood today? I mean, what would he look like? And, and if he were to show up in Hollywood, what would he say? What would he say to our culture? I mean, what would he say uh, about like movies like Titanic with his graphic portrayal of licentiousness and adultery? Or how about a movie like The Lord of the Rings filled with pagan mysticism and mythology? Or how about the R-rated Braveheart full of graphic violence? Or how about Harry Potter? You remember how uh, we reacted when that came out, right? And for good reason. Witch, witchcraft really, really does serve demons. I've witnessed it. Believe me, it's evil. It's, it's evil. What if Jesus were to come to Hollywood or, or Denver today? Remember when he, the, the God-man, went to Sodom? Eternal fire consumed that city. I mean, maybe he'd call down fire. Maybe he'd go to war. Ancient Moab must have looked something like uh, Sodom. Remember last week we talked about 2 Kings chapter 3? And I'm just so excited to see you back this week. But anyway, we, we talked about 2 Kings chapter 3 and how Israel went to war with, with Moab commissioned by God through Elisha, and they were winning the war until King Mesha of Moab took the son who was to remain, uh, to, to reign in his place and sacrificed him. Human sacrifice on, on the wall of the city. And when he did, the wrath, appearing to be seemingly the wrath of God, turned against Israel. Well, Sacrificing a child to a, a pagan idol is profoundly evil. And yet we ask this question, maybe, maybe King Mesha sacrificed the son he loved for the nation he loved. Kind of like Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac and the whole world is blessed be, because he did that. Kind of like God the Father sacrificed God the Son and saved all humanity. I, I mean, maybe, maybe, perhaps, maybe, kind of, sort of, partly, that sacrifice was, was some sort of painful love surrendered to the unknown God who, who is love. And so Moab and Israel were saved. And so we scratched our heads last week a bit. Scratched our heads and, and thought, well, gosh, that story really does sound familiar. And yet it happened in Moab, drenched in absolute evil. I mean, that's kind of like Dr. Evil singing, what if God was one of us in an Austin Powers movie? <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> what, what do you say about that? Oh, what would you say if you were like an evangelist to Moab about 2,500 years ago? Would you say repent? Because you people do not have a clue about the love of God and the sacrifice that he made for you, giving his own son for you. You don't understand. 
What would you say if you were an evangelist to India, like, like my friend Andrew, and you met the woman that I told you about last week, the woman who had just sacrificed her child to Shiva? What would you say? Repent, woman, because you have no clue as to who our God is. Or would you say repent? Because you, my dear, know something about the very heart of God who sacrificed his son so that you could hold your son forever. Well, anyway, after the service last week up on the mountain on Saturday night, my friend Perry came up and said, wow, this is, this is just some fascinating thoughts, but Peter, do you find that sort of thing anywhere in the New Testament? And I said, yup. <laughs> I quoted myself, Acts 17, I said. You know, the book of Acts is the story of the church invading this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fire of, of his spirit. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, if you read Acts, he has a small layover in the city of Athens. So he's just hanging out in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He, he was provoked. Paroxuno. It, it's where we get our word paroxysm. You, you know that word? He's having a paroxysm. Paul had a paroxysm. He just grew furious over this city full of, full of idols. Idolatry is a violation of the first commandment and the great commandment. Thou shalt have no other God before me, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Chemosh in, in Moab what, what was an idol. Shiva in India is an idol. Savings accounts, new cars, football teams, governments, philosophical ideas, even atheism, other people, even religion can all be idols. Idolatry is misdirected worship. And you and I, like Michael said, were made to worship. In the absence of the true God, we will worship. We will find a God and worship it. To worship is to sacrifice, it's to offer one's life. All over the world, people worship and people sacrifice to something. If it's not God, it's an idol. We destroy idols even as idols destroy us. So for example, if you worship sex, you'll destroy sex and sex will destroy you. Worship an idol and you'll destroy the idol and the idol will destroy you. You'll give your life and it will take your life and never give it back. So anyway, Paul enters Athens and he sees this idolatry and he, he just grows furious. He has, a, he has a paroxysm. And now remember, for, for Paul, Athens did not bring up memories of my big fat Greek wedding, okay? or tourists on tour buses getting off to see the Acropolis. For Jews, Athens was every bit as vile as old Kir Haraseth in Moab that we talked about last week. Athens was the very heart of the evil empire. You know, the New Testament is written in Greek because in 332 BC, Alexander the Great's armies captured Jerusalem. In 175 BC, the Greek ruler Antioch Epiphanes IV outlawed the worship of Yahweh in Israel. 
He massacred countless thousands of Jews, and he sacrificed pigs to the Greek god Zeus in the very heart of the temple where he had built an altar and an idol. Zeus was the high god, high god of the pagan pantheon, an idol. Ares was the god of war. In Paul's time, he was known by the Roman name Mars. When Greek generals won a battle, or Roman generals won a battle, it was traditional to take uh, the foreign commander and ritually strangle him in front of a statue of Mars. In the middle of Athens was this rock hill called Mars Hill. Or in Greek, the Areopagus, Areopagus, Ares Rock. This is Mars Hill viewed from the Acropolis, and you can see Athens out there, out there around it. The leaders of Athens met in council on that hill, and the council took their name, met in a council for hundreds of years, and all over that hill, all over the city, were just countless idols, and Paul had a paroxysm. Yeah! I hope you have a, a paroxysm. But when you have your paroxysm, what do you do with it? Paul had a paroxysm. I think he felt the very wrath of God and he wanted to go to war with the God of war. He wanted to go to war and he wanted to call down fire upon the city and, and maybe, maybe he did. Next verse, verse 17. So what did Paul do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and, and reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He reasoned, dialegomai. It's where we get a word dialogue, like Socratic method, the, the Socratic method of, of, of reasoned dialogue. He dialogued, not monologued. You, you know, you monologue when you proclaim truth. I'm, I'm monologuing right now, I'm proclaiming truth. But you dialogue when you want to find truth. What the hell is Paul doing dialoguing with idolaters in Athens? Next verse. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler, seed pecker, wish, wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign, strange, new divinities. And because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, so Paul had a paroxysm, and he, having the paroxysm, he engaged in reasonable dialogue. <laughs> Is that something we American evangelical Christians are especially known for? Reasonable, reasonable dialogue. Paul dialogued with, with everyone in the marketplace. He, he dialogued with the philosophers. Athens, you know, had been home to uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle is the father of modern-day science, the empirical method, and science can certainly be an idol. Philosophy can certainly be an idol, and yet Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle also all postulated the existence of this, well, uncreated creator that they referred to with the Greek word theos, not, not the gods, but a, a, a god. In fact, Socrates was tried on the Areopagus 450 years before Paul, and they executed Socrates because they said he would not acknowledge the gods of Athens, and he introduced new strange gods like this Theos. 
Well, anyway, Paul dialogued with philosophers, including the Epicurean philosophers, who believed that the good was to maximize pleasure. Now, pleasure can certainly be an idol, and yet the Epicureans described the greatest pleasure was this, like, well, this, like, blessedness or happiness that came upon you when you hungered and thirsted for, for, for righteousness. And Paul dialogued with uh, the Epicurean, dialogued with the Stoics, who had a great deal of faith in reason. Now, reason can, human reason can certainly be an idol. The Stoics believed that reason was like, well, like this, this substance, the substance of God and breath of God breathed into every person. So in every person, there was like this seed of this reason, and this reason was fire. They said, we all came from the fire. We're all going back to the fire, and the fire was God. One one of their poets, a man named Aratus, he, 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 he wrote this, we are indeed his offspring. Well, the Stoics had a word for this substance of God, this all-pervasive, fiery, divine reason. Did you know what the word was? Logos, yeah, Christian got it, logos. Which is translated word in, in, in your Bible, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, anyway, Paul dialogued with all these folks in the marketplace, and he dialogued in the synagogue. You know, it's not just the philosophers that are trying to take the knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's also religion. In fact, religion can be the worst of all idols. Well, Paul dialogued and he learned about idolatry in Athens. He learned about a Greek poet named Epimenides who in the 6th century B.C. wrote a poem about Zeus, okay, about Zeus and how the men of Crete thought that Zeus was mortal. Epimenides wrote this, they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idol bellies, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you, we live and move and have our being. Wow. <laughs> Where would an old pagan poet get an idea like that? Well, anyway, Paul dialogued. And he learned the word of Epimenides and he learned a legend about Epimenides. According to Diogenes uh, Lortius, a third century Greek historian, and also according to some references in Plato and Aristotle and a few other places, a great plague uh, fell upon the city of Athens like a curse sometime uh, along around 600 BC. Well, horrified at the destruction, the council on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, uh, met and decided to send a man named Nicias on this desperate journey to the Pythian Oracle where a pagan priestess informed Nicias that Athens was being punished for the sins of one of their former kings. The oracle did not know the name of this god that was punishing Athens, but the priestess told Nicias that there was a man on the island of Crete that she thought would know how to make atonement uh, to this god. The man's name was Epimenides. So, so a short time later, Nicias and Epimenides walked into Athens. Uh, like Paul, Epimenides must have been just totally shocked that the city was full of idols. They used to say, there are more gods in Athens than, than men. Well, in the morning, Epimenides gathered uh, the council together and a bunch of people of Athens on Mars Hill. 
He had instructed some people to bring a flock of sheep, uh, sheep and, or lambs. It appears that Epimenides then addressed the council with something like the, the following proposition. Now, this is the way it's recounted in Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, which I highly recommend. But Epimenides stood on Mars Hill and, and he said something like this. Athenians, you have already sacrificed to every god that you know. So I propose that there is at least one God who you don't know, and that perhaps this God is great enough and good enough that if you would only seek his favor, only seek his mercy, he would grant your request and lift this plague. And so Epimenides commanded servants to release the lambs, praying, unknown God, choose your atonement. Wherever a lamb would lay down on the grass instead of eating the grass, the green grass in the morning, Epimenides had instructed artisans on that spot to build an altar. And then on that altar to sacrifice a lamb, the lamb that had lied there on the grass. Atonement to this unknown God. Well, as they did that, the plague began to lift. Ancient authors wrote of these altars to the unknown God. Some said plural gods, but some also said, said God. These altars to the unknown gods scattered throughout Athens. Well, obviously, over the years, the altars fell into disrepair over 600 years, but one of these altars was maintained and preserved, apparently with the hope that one day that unknown God would be revealed. And that if and when he was revealed, the Athenians would remember that he was no stranger. He was no foreigner, uh, no stranger to their city, but that with lamb's blood once before he had redeemed them, redeemed them all from the curse. Paul must have heard that story. And now 600 years later, Acts 17, this strange little Jewish rabbi comes to town and starts dialoguing. Verse 19. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's Mars Hill. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presented, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, so Paul has a paroxysm. Paul dialogues, and now, now, he preaches. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, the heart of the evil empire, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, he says, the Theos, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man. Which man do you suppose Paul is talking about? The first Adam or the last Adam? And he, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God. 
Let us search for him, long for him, desire him. Hey, if you're married, um, while you dated, did, did you try to make the other person seek you, long for you? Sometimes even play hard to get. Well, anyway, he says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now check that out. Paul is not quoting the Bible. Who's he quoting? Epimenides. And yet now the words of Epimenides are in the Bible. That means in 600 BC, in, in pagan Greece, a pagan poet spoke the word of God, the logos of God, the logos that became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, logos incarnos, Jesus. Wow. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said. Even as some of your poets have said. And now Paul is quoting Aratus. For we are indeed, we are indeed his, we are indeed his offspring. We, that's Jews and unconverted Greeks. We are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, I mean, I think that's like kids, right? Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, the theon, which is also translated brimstone, the fiery substance of God, we ought not to think that the, that the divinity is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day, a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius. That's interesting. The name Dionysius is a Greek god, the god of partying, Bacchus to the Romans. The Areopagite, that means this dude was on the council, the Areopagus. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them uh, believed. Now, check this out. This is Mars Hill today. Tourist buses drop people off in that parking lot. But there are no altars to pagan deities on Mars Hill anymore. And you won't find foreign dignitaries being ritually strangled there to the glory of Mars. But you will find this bronze plaque. You can see it kind of over there on the right. The dude in the blue shirt, some lady in a green shirt, some other else there. They're reading the plaque. The text is Acts 17, 22 through 30. What we just read, it's the word of God through St. Paul, Aratus, and Epimenides. And, and the word of God is the logos of God, fire from the mouth of God. So, so check this out. Paul had a paroxysm. He dialogued. He found the altar. He preached. And the fire fell, consuming the sacrifices including a dude named Dionysius, the Areopagite, Damaris, the woman, and maybe even that dude in the blue shirt that's reading the plaque in the picture. See, I think Paul did go to war. Paul did call down fire. Upon an altar that God had been building for 600 years. 
See, God not only builds altars on Mount Zion. We know he also builds at least one on Mars Hill. Through ancient plagues, little lambs, through pagan poets writing poems about Zeus, through Greek philosophers like Socrates, willing to die for the way and the truth. Through Epicureans and Stoics contemplating joy and, and the Logos, even through Alexander and Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the sack of Jerusalem and even the worship of Mars. All along, God had been building an altar to the unknown God. Now, Paul didn't know where that altar was, but I think he suspected that it was. For he knew that Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is the light that enlightens all men. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that means Jesus had arrived in Athens long, long, long before Paul. And so believing God had always been at work in Athens, Paul figured there'd be some sort of altar to an unknown God. He just had to find it, fill in the blank, saying, what you therefore worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. It's good news. His name is Jesus. And it means God saves. For 600 years, I mean, really, probably like, if, if you think about it, for thousands of years, God had been constructing an altar. Why? I mean, why construct an altar to, to an unknown God? Well, because, as Paul said, he made from one Adam every nation that they should seek him. Want him, desire him, fall in, yearn for him in the hope they'd fall in love with him. Seek him and find him. Literally, that they might perhaps, if possible, seek. It's the optative tense. It's like Paul is aware of what he says in Romans 3 when he says, no one seeks God. No one seeks God, but, he, but he's making them to seek God. So how can they seek if no one seeks? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. So how could Socrates, Epimenides, and Aratus seek God? Only, only through the Spirit of Jesus. The Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Dang, I think that would even include altars to the unknown God. And the faith, hope, and love with which we seek God. And the dudes that come and preach the Word of God. And the new us that is born of uh, God by that word of God. In other words, it's Jesus, the word of God that seeks and saves the lost. It's Jesus. Like Paul said, God is not served by human hands as if he, he needed anything. Do you think God needs you to preach the word? Do you think God needed Paul to preach the word? You know, some people will say, well, why should I preach the word? Why should I preach the gospel if God doesn't need me to preach the gospel? Well, I don't think those people really believe the gospel. And because of that, they don't want to preach the gospel. Gospel means good news. Did you know that? Euangelion, that's, that's the Greek. It's where we get our word evangelical. It means 
a good newser. Got good news to tell you. When the kids were little and Susan was having a bad day, that's Susan back in the corner there. When Susan was having a good day, which was usually because of me, no, when she was having a bad day, which was, I said good day, when she was having a bad day, which was usually because of me, because we had argued and, and, and needing some atonement and reconciliation on those days, at, sometimes at, at the right time, I would grab one of my kids, John, Beth, Becky, or Coleman, and uh, I would say, let's run to the store and buy mommy some flowers. And so we'd run to the store and buy Susan some flowers. And when we get home, I'd say, John, Beth, Becky, or, or Coleman, any one of them, I'd say, hey, hey, would you like to hand the flowers to mommy? Now, I dated the woman. I married the bride. I drove the car. I paid for the flowers. I arranged everything. I mean, it was my decision. It was my judgment by flowers. And then I'd say, hey, John, buddy, you want to hand mommy the flowers? And he never, ever, ever said no. None of my kids ever said no. They never said no. Why did they never say, no, Daddy, I don't want her to enter the flowers? Because they knew something. They knew that the flowers were good news, good news. But now imagine if I said, Jonathan, here's the flowers. I want you to hand them to him, and I want you to say this. Tell, tell Mommy these flowers are for her, and, and I love her, provided she says, I'm sorry. And she shows significant signs of, of remorse. And if she doesn't, I want you to tell her I'm coming again. I'm coming back to take the flowers back because I hate her and I will hate her as long as I live. Now, buddy, I need you, jo Jonathan, I need you to convince her to accept this good news. <laughs> I think John would say, Daddy, I don't want to hand her the flowers. <laughs> Well, you see, for thousands of years, God arranged everything. God paid for everything. And then at the right time, he said, Paul, look, look, Paul, her hands are empty. Her eyes are filled with tears. Now, Paul, now, preach the gospel. Now, Paul, hand her the flowers. It's eternal gospel, Paul, it's eternal gospel. That means I'm not changing my mind. Hand her the flowers. You see, it really is good news. And we really are supposed to proclaim it, good news. And yet, to be fair, good news can be judgment. I mean, brides, have you ever been really, really angry at your husband? And then you receive a big, beautiful bouquet of flowers that he bought you? kind of ticks you off, doesn't it? Have you ever hated someone and then that someone does something super, super duper, you know, not manipulative, but super duper nice for you? Don't you hate that? Have you ever been forgiven when, when you really did not want to be forgiven? You know, it burns, it burns, doesn't it? It burns. See, you, you may be forgiven and yet refuse to accept it and sit in outer darkness weeping and gnashing your teeth. You may choose to hate the flowers even if, especially if, he won't take them back. Well, anyway, Paul says repent. 
That means change the way you think about stuff. Uh, he says, God doesn't need you to serve him like you serve these idols. Repent because God has fixed a day in which, not, not on which, the Greek is in which, in which he will judge. And actually, that's a curious Greek phrase that doesn't really mean will judge. It's a present verb followed by a present active infinitive, meaning he is about or he is at the point of judging the world. So, so Paul's saying repent because God has fixed a day in which he is at the point of beginning to judge the world in righteousness by or more literally in a man. So Paul is saying God judges the world in a day in a man beginning now as you hear this word. You know Jesus said he judges no one. That's what he says in the gospel of John. I, I judge no one, and yet he is the judgment. End of the day of his crucifixion, he said, now, now is the judgment of this world. You see, it's like an eternal day that invades all of this temporal reality. So, so do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is the Father's eternal bouquet of flowers handed to you. Jesus crucified and risen from the dead is the Father's judgment of you and all of mankind, the children of, of Adam, the first Adam, the second Adam upon the first Adam. Jesus is what we're all looking for. He completes us in the very image of God and, and all around you, all around you, God has prepared altars. Altars to the unknown God. And the bride meets the bridegroom at the altar. And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's what, what Paul calls it. And so God says to you, go, go find those altars. Find the empty hands and the empty hearts longing for my mercy. And you, I want you to hand them the flowers. Preach the gospel that the unknown God will become the known God. I meet my bride at the altar. You see, this world is full of altars to the unknown God. In mythology, history, philosophy, science. And yet, sadly, we seem to be so frightened to dialogue that we don't find the altars. And we don't proclaim the gospel. We just yell, issue threats, and never preach good news. Every movie, every story, every story is an altar to the unknown God, or it's not a story. Can you think of a story in which someone does not seek the way, the truth, or the life? And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Can you think of a story in which someone does not sacrifice something for the cause of love, and God is love? And sure, they depict sin and evil, but without sin and evil, how could you ever tell the story of grace? The gospel is grace. Gandalf, Jack, William Wallace, Harry Potter, each is an altar to the unknown God. And so in this hidden way, God is coming to Hollywood and to Denver all the time, invading our imagination 
all the time, and God is coming to Hollywood and Denver all the time in you, even as you. Uh, when you say, you know, hey, you, you adore Gandalf, Jack, William, and, and Harry, that which you worship is unknown, I declare to you, I declare it to you. you do, you, do you remember that part in, in the movie, in the Harry Potter movie, when Harry finally uh, uh, chooses to lay down his life in order to save the world from evil? Well, that's not just a story. That really happened from the foundation of the world. And hey, do you remember that, that part in the, in the Harry Potter movie when Voldemort thinks he's gonna kill Harry? He's gonna, he's gonna kill him, but when he kills him, he signs his own death warrant and Harry rises from the dead? That's not just a story. That really happened at a cross. The dude's name wasn't Harry, though. It was something else. You see, that which you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. Have some flowers. And so what am I saying? Number one, never, ever, ever practice witchcraft. <laughs> Number two, go see all the Harry Potter movies looking for Jesus. You know, I saw, I found a website last week. It was some dude talking about how C.S. Lewis was a heretic because J.K. Rowling seemed to be inspired by the Narnia stories. What is that? What are we doing? We're not on the losing team. We're on the winning team. Every city must contain an, an altar to the unknown God. Even Kir Haraseth and Moab must contain an altar to the unknown God, the unknown God of love. Even Sodom has an altar or is an altar. Scripture says very clearly Sodom will be restored. And, and it also tells us that Jesus preaches even in the outer darkness, the depths of the earth to the spirits in prison. I mean, you see, maybe, maybe even in Hades or with Hades, God still builds that altar, preparing the hearts in outer darkness for the revelation of his mercy when death is consumed by life and darkness is consumed by light, eternal fire. Maybe this whole world, this whole world is like an altar to the unknown God, prepared through all the days of Kronos, through all the days of time, until it is finally flooded with eternal fire and this earth will be full of knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea and the unknown God will eternally be the known God. Every heart contains an altar to the unknown God. Perhaps each of us is an altar to the unknown God, for God has made us to seek after him in the hopes of finding him, says Paul. So, so, so don't yell at people. I mean, I yell, but I'm not yelling at you, okay? <laughs> don't, don't yell at people. Don't, don't condemn people. Don't go to war with people or call down fire on people. Dialogue with people until you find the altar to the unknown God and then preach saying that which you worship is unknown. <laughs> oh, this I proclaim to you. And, and now let me just warn you. That place where they worship the unknown God, it might be ugly. And it'll probably look like an idol. You see, the idol forms the altar on which the glory of God is revealed. The idol is sin, and the glory of God is grace. An idol is misdirected worship. So every murderer 
longs for something. I think they even worship something. And you know what that is? Judgment. They have just decided to take judgment into their own hands. That's why they murder. And Jesus is the judgment. The judgment of grace, which they truly long for. Every sex addict longs for communion. That's why they sleep around. And Jesus is the communion, the communion of grace. Every addict longs for freedom. That's why they abuse drugs. And Jesus is the freedom of grace. Every person tries to create themselves in the image of God with the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they idolize their own judgments. And that's sin. And yet it reveals God's judgment, <laughs> which is grace. Grace is the thing that makes us, not us. Grace makes us in the image of God. You see, for all of time, God has been building an altar in your heart and an altar on Mount Zion. It started as a tree in a garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In ancient Israel, they knew it as the law. They took knowledge and they thought they fulfilled the law. They thought they knew God, and yet behold, he was still the unknown God. But he kept building the altar through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Solomon, through the law and the prophets, through a zillion rituals in the ancient stone temple involving birds and lambs and scapegoats and priests and blood, through exile, destruction and reconstruction, through Greeks and through Romans, he built the altar. And, and with our sin, he built the altar until that day, that Friday in 33 AD when it was finished. And he cried from the altar, it is finished. You see, every altar is that altar. For we all meet the bridegroom at that altar. For at that altar, the sins of the entire world are consumed by grace. Consumed by love. God is love and grace is his judgment. We are judged in Christ Jesus at his cross in that day. He bears our sin to destruction. He gives us his very life as our life and we give him our life as his life and that is life, a communion of love called life. And there the unknown God becomes the known God. For this, is that altar. And in that day, that night, which to the Hebrews is the beginning of the day, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it. And in the same way, after supper, having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it, do it in remembrance of me. Come, let's reason together. Although your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Come, let's reason together. You see, we reason with others 
because Christ has first reasoned with us. We dialogue with others because Christ has first dialogued with us. We love others because he first loved us. And so you see, your, your life really is like an altar. And on that altar is the self that you have built with your judgments, your pride, your arrogance. Well, come meet Jesus at this altar and present yourself as a living sacrifice and call upon the fire of God, which is the mercy of God, and you die with Jesus and you rise with Jesus to an eternal communion of love, which is life. You see, you can start right now at this table in your heart and one day everything you have will be fire. In Jesus' name, um, let's pray. So just, just say this after me. Lord Jesus, you are good. You can say it out loud, just say that. Lord Jesus, you are good. So I surrender myself. Thank you for giving me yourself. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. Amen. Let's come to the table to have a piece of the bread. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. They're both the love of God. Do you see to the extent that he goes to reveal to you his love? They're, they're the love of God for you. Believe it and live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Things work together for my good. Thank you, Lord, for that. Well, imagine how Paul felt when he first stepped foot in Greece, being a Jew. And imagine how Paul felt when those dudes came and got him and started to drag him off to Mars Hill, God of War Hill. I mean, don't you think he'd be terrified? Or at least be tempted to be terrified. And, and yet, Paul knew something. He knew that Jesus had gotten there first. And you know, your life is a little like Paul's life. Um, uh, when you step into another person's life, a lot of times it's like, oh my gosh, this is like the hill of war or something. But have courage, because Jesus has been there first. Look for the altar to the unknown God. Stepping into your future is a little bit like that. I mean, if you're like me, I'm like, gosh, I don't, I don't want to step into the future, because, um, but, but Jesus has been there first. I'm preparing altars for the unknown God. And sometimes I don't want to step in the future because I think to myself, God, I'll screw up, I'll mess up, I'll sin. And, and he knows that. And you know what he'll do with that sin? He'll build an altar to the unknown God so that he would become the known God, so that you would no longer want to sin. You see, Jesus is before you, behind you, all around you, making you in his image. So have courage, have courage. And if you look at the life of Paul, he went through some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, after he stepped foot in Greece, he stepped foot in all sorts of countries all through the Roman Empire. He was beaten, he was flogged, but he knew that Jesus had been there first. 
One day he decided to go to Rome because he thought Jesus wanted him to go to Rome. People prophesied, you go to Rome, I mean, you go to Jerusalem, uh, you go to Jerusalem, you'll be bound up. They'll beat you, they'll bind you. Uh, don't go to Jerusalem, but Paul went because he knew that Jesus had been there first. And then they dragged him off, and the tradition is that they finally beheaded him in Rome. And yet I think Paul, he's human, so he's got some fear, and yet he went with courage because he knew Jesus had been there first. Uh, he died with Peter in Rome. He died with Paul in Rome. And he's the one that makes all things new. So I'm just saying, as you leave this place, step out with courage because Jesus has been there first. And hand people the flowers. Just hand them the flowers. You're not the judge. You're the little kid delivering the flowers. And it's good news. In his name, amen.